When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With history, with uh, with sports, with anything, inflection points are really important to look at. So just because Tom Brady does take over for the quarterback of the Patriots doesn't mean that he always would have taken over had the universe played itself out in an infinite, infinite variety of things. So I do think it teaches us a little humility. It teaches us about the possibilities of you know all sorts of occurrences. But then the other part is you can go too far and to say, oh, but for this small thing, but for this, and we did this with the election, but for Hillary Clinton paying two visits to Wisconsin, the entire, the entire result would be different. And I do think that's a trap also. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we speak to the host of the popular Slate podcast, The Gist, Mike Pesca who's going to be talking about his new book, Upon Further Review, The Greatest What-Ifs in Sports History, which is a collection of essays by a wide variety of sports writers who are imagining how the sports world and the real world would have been altered if some of the most iconic moments in sports history, famous shots, games, plays, tackles, had gone the other way. Also, we've got some choice words about a 22-year-old second-year NFL player named Dwayne Smoot and what his words of resistance mean to the future of the NFL and protests against owners and police violence, as well as racial inequity. I've also got the Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down awards, Kaepernick Watch, and we have a shout-out for some new patrons. But first, let's go to Mike Pesca. So, Mike Pesca, what's the value of these kinds of thought exercises beyond just the fun of it all? Well, the value of exercise a little bit to try to uh, get out of the rut of the same way of thinking. So commonly we say just because history was the way it was is the way that it was meant to be or it was inevitable. But of course, that's not true. So with history, with, uh, with sports, with anything, inflection points are really important to look at. I start the book in my introduction talking about the Battle of Brooklyn and George Washington escaping under the cover of fog. And But for that, many historians will say that the colonials would have been decimated then and there might not be in America. So just because Tom Brady does take over for the quarterback of the Patriots doesn't mean that he always would have taken over had the universe played itself out in an infinite infinite variety of things. So I do think it teaches us a little humility. It teaches us about the possibilities of you know all sorts of occurrences. But then the other part is you can go too far and you say, oh, but for this small thing, but 
for this, and we did this with the election, but for Hillary Clinton paying two visits to Wisconsin, the entire, the entire result would be different. And I do think that's a trap also. Mm. So it, one of the interesting things about reading the book, and I did enjoy it very much, was the eclectic nature of the subjects that you chose to try to revisit uh, historically. Um, I mean, there, there are infinite possibilities in, in terms of what you could devote chapters to. How, right. did, how did you nail that down? How did you decide? How did you zero in on what particular subjects were interesting to you that you thought would be interesting to the reader? Like, what was your process? Well, I wanted to, eclectic is the right word, and I wanted to be eclectic in terms of the voices and the sports and the subjects and the time periods, but also the tones. So uh, we have absurdist essays, like from John Boyce, who writes, what if the basketball rims were smaller than the basketballs? And it's a pretty, uh, pretty realistic transcript of a typical TNT broadcast where, for the thousandth time, a basketball game ends in a 0-0 tie, though Reggie Miller is lecturing us all about proper form. But I also wanted to apply a little bit of structure because I think when the layman when you and your friends at a bar talk about what ifs it usually means if only if only we had drafted mm-hmm. this guy or if only we had gotten the call and that's fine I mean that's not only fine that's kind of necessary and the sports fan needs that because sports is mostly disappointment and in in a league every team except the winner's season ends in a loss or a disqualification from the playoffs so that's not good and without what ifs would I be a Mets fan would I be a Jets fan probably not but the the structure that I wanted to add was something along the lines of it has to be a good history lesson or it has to really definitively weigh in and settle a debate with a lot of rigor or it has to uh, have an impact beyond sports. I think that's useful. Or it has to lead to ripples, plausible ripples that we wouldn't even consider so that it becomes this uh, exercise in divergent thinking. And that's how I essentially cast my chapters. Yeah, how, how did you come up even with the idea of taking on this project? Were you sitting in a bar with a friend and saying to yourselves, boy, what if Bernard King hadn't gotten injured? What would that have meant? So, how, was, was there a particular what if for you that sparked this thinking? It wasn't one. It was the fact that for NPR, I covered many sports championships, uh, five World Series and six or seven Super Bowls and Final Fours and uh, World Cups and the Olympics and confetti would rain down and uh, teams would hug and fans would cry. And I kind of reflected at one point, you know, as a Jets fan and a Mets fan, and it could have gone Giants and Yankees, right? And then I'd have all Mm -hmm. these championships. (laughs) But since I only had that one championship in my life, plus I also like the Knicks and St. John's, so none of this is really helping me actually experience a championship. I found myself saying, well, what if, you know, what if the Knicks won? What if, what if the, what if St. John's, I don't know, made a final four? This is something to dream about. What if I could share that with my kids? What if, what if, what if? And then as I started thinking about it more and realizing that was regret and ruining, well, what is the real way to add structure? And the Bernard King thing is great because every, the fan of every franchise has this, you know, the, the one injury that uh, besotted your team, the one draft pick that you're on. But with Bernard King, my introductory notes to the essay on the 10 worst uh, injuries in NBA history, it was more about what that means when you think about your guy lying on the floor of a now disused NBA arena and the actual role of, you know, playing it out. Because I do think if Bernard King were healthy, obviously the Knicks would be better. Would they have won championships? Unlikely. 
possible but also unlikely but it's the fuel it's the it's the thing that keeps us coming back um this you know it i i mentioned what if the rims were smaller than the hoops it's like that carny game where you think it's so close but you just quite nail it and that's what they want you to think or if we didn't think that way there'd be no we wouldn't look at sports as entertainment because really when you think about it how many forms of entertainment leave us this disappointed this consistently it's very rare Mm. What, one of the things I like about the mix of what ifs in the book is that some of them are positively whimsical and some of them are very rooted in the politics of sports. Like what if Billie Jean King had lost? What if Muhammad Ali uh, had gone through, like hadn't, hadn't stood up to the war in Vietnam and how that would that have played out? Um, I, I wanted to ask you, I know this might be a little bit like choosing your favorite child, but which of the essays really stand out to you? What are the ones that you're particularly proud of in the book? I think the one that I was most, uh, my mind was most opened by was the second to last chapter in the book, Claude Johnson. Do you know Claude Johnson, Dave? Absolutely. I know Claude Johnson. Yeah. It's about the Black Fives and all kinds yep. of interesting so- uh, subject matter. So this guy is doing just with his foundation great work teaching the history of uh, the pre-NBA and especially with the great African-American basketball teams. But I did not know. I think I perhaps was vaguely aware that there was this this jamboree, this this basketball jamboree of sorts where all the great barnstorming teams and also the teams affiliated with leagues but all the different leagues would come together and uh, WWE style throw down in a summer smackdown and – one year of many years, the Harlem Wrens were the best team, and that Sweetwater Clifton, who would go on to the NBA Hall of Fame, was a mainstay, although you know he, he, was, he played for different teams at different times, depending on who the highest bidder was. But he paints this picture of a very important year where the Wrens were up against George Mikan's Lakers, and it was close, but a pass goes awry, and if that pass had been on the money, and if the Wrens had win, and Claude points out that it's plausible to think they would have, then the Wrens get invited to the NBA in much more favorable circumstances because what happened was the Dayton team uh, disbands and then they replace them with the Harlem Wrens. So all these guys from Harlem have to move to Dayton, but they thrust the Dayton team's existing record on them, The you know, which was like 20 games under 500 at that point. And it just was ensuring they set them up to fail. But if the Wrens win, they're set up to succeed. They have, they're in the driver's seat. And I think Claude Johnson not only tells me all about a history that I didn't know, but really convinces me that the NBA integrates, you know, almost a decade earlier and in a real way, not in the uh, fits and starts that it does. Wow. Yeah, no, I I particularly love that essay as well. You know, when you're coming up with this book, I imagine this huge whiteboard uh, with possibilities and cross-sectioned with authors. And are, are there any that didn't make it that you can share with us? Well, yeah, there there are a bunch that didn't make it. With some of the authors, I figured, I, knowing Stefan Fatsis or knowing uh, Nate DeMeo, very creative guys, and Nate produces the Memory Podcast, uh, the Memory Palace Podcast, which is, you know, I think it's 99% not about sports, or although he did one on the 1904 St. Louis Olympics. So he is steeped in uh, history, and he knows how to tell a story. But the other thing that I knew about Nate was there was this book a few years ago about Parks and Rec, and it was written from the perspective of the character Leslie Nope, but Nate really put together that book. So he's great at 
convincing slash fake histories. And when I called up Nate, I didn't know what he would think of, but immediately he said, tug of war, tug of war in the Olympics. And I said, go for it, man. Same thing with Stefan Fatsis, who said, I've always wondered about the Bucky Dent home run. And then he writes it in uh, faux memoir form, and it really comes off great. As far as the ones, so those those were examples where, oh, I thought we'd generate 20 uh, different ideas, but they wanted to do one. Whereas I asked uh, Josh Levine, same question, and we did come up with, you know, a good 10 to 12 ideas. And one of them was the uh, Kurt Vonnegut, Harrison Bergeron uh, idea. What if everyone were exactly the same? So we were just thinking of different scenarios of making uh, athletic skill or athletic prowess exactly the same. No one could jump any higher than anyone. No one could uh, throw a ball any faster. How does that change sports? Does that make sports exciting? Which kind of sports could not possibly exist? Uh, A fascinating thought exercise, but the essay he did do was a little more cinematic, shall we say. Mm. Now, I know you wrote a little bit in the book about Bernard King and if he hadn't been injured, but if you had written, gone, gone full out and written a full chapter yourself, do you have a what if that's close to your heart that you maybe would have liked to have seen there or one that you felt like that this is the one that you would tell? Yeah, I, I often think of St. John's, St. John's basketball. Um, I often think of uh, the Louis kind of sucker teams where we all said, uh, all they do is win 20 games and make it three rounds in the tournament and what we wouldn't give for that. I don't know. Maybe the idea is something like, what if, what if we valued what we had rather than the uh, uncertain future? I have a lot of chapter. I just enjoyed smart people pursuing all these different chapter ideas. I have this idea. I had, I'll had. i tell you about a couple ideas that would have been interesting depending on whose hands they were in. One is the idea for a the trial of blank, and it can be the trial of Sepp Blatter, right? Or the, mm. the trial of Roger Goodell. And we can set the universe however we want. So in, in Ethan Strauss's What If the 2017 Golden State Warriors Had a Time Machine to Play Every Great Team in History, you know, that's a thought exercise or that's a, an article I've seen written sometimes as a listicle. Who's better, the 2017 Warriors or these other teams? And sometimes if the author is really good, they'll take into account that some of the rules have changed and spacing has changed and the roster construction on the, on the 93 Bulls is going to be different with the role of three-pointers different. But they don't do what Ethan did, which is to really lean into the, you know, chance to have excellent sci-fi. So I like the idea of the trial of whoever, and you could make it any kind of trial. You could set it on court TV and make it schlocky like that. You could have them before a uh, Supreme Court. You could take them into the, what is it, the Forbidden Zone, which sent it from Superman, which sent General Zod well, I guess the punishment's the forbidden zone. I don't know what the tribunal is called. But I'd really like to see what the uh, what the case would be, what the defense would be. And I also think that, uh, like, let's say we did Goodell. The glee would be to finally have this guy get his comeuppance. But if we assign him a really good defense lawyer, I think you could make a lot of points. And I think the points are sort of along the lines of, I have a duty to serve these 30 owners and I was serving their interests. So anything you say about me is, is really uh, redounds to them. Just look at how much they thought, how, how much of a great job they thought I did. Look at what they paid me. And then you could all say, and anything that redounds to them redounds to the public because uh, we did create the most popular sport in America. So am I really on, it's sort of putting the whole society on trial. I mean, that would be my defense if I were his defense attorney. Anyway, you see why it's a rich area, right? Oh, yeah. 
it, it makes me want to ask you a question a, a little bit uh, parallel to this, which is if you could put anybody in sports history under sodium pentothal and be able to sit down with them for 45 minutes and get a terrific on-the-record interview, uh, who would that be? Uh, that's a great question. Let's see. How about um, who was the third baseman on the Black Sox who uh, Cusack uh, played? Buck Weaver. How about Buck Weaver? To what extent did he know? But then, you know, that's a question, right? That's only one question. Wouldn't it be great just you hear all this mythology about a guy named Wilt or you hear all this mythology about Mm -hmm. the times in professional sports which were undercovered and you don't really know what was going on with like why Michael Jackson – Jackson, hello. Why Michael Jordan really quit basketball? I mean, Michael Ooh, Jordan under sodium pentothal would be really interesting. Unless the answer is, oh, I got so sick of it and wanted to uh, hit a curveball. Like, it's very possible that the answer would be less than satisfying. <laughs> oh, I'll tell you what. I really do think, though, I mean, just for the, for the public good, to find out everything that we could know about the bidding process for World Cups. That, that would be useful. Yeah, that would be useful. That would be for the public good. What made me think of it is you talking about Roger Goodell and being on trial and me thinking how much I'd love to interview him and actually find out what the NFL actually has known historically about CTE, uh, about violence against women and all the years they did nothing about it when players were accused and just get him on the record speaking about those issues, let alone Colin Kaepernick and collusion. Yeah, the the Kaepernick thing, I'd like to find out from some owners how much they were pressured or if it was just that thing that we do as members of our species where there seems to be a uh, a general consensus that need not be spoken. I'd love to see if it really was spoken in collusionary forms, though I kind of suspect with Goodell, it's a little like the, I mean, I mean, if you ask the question 10 years ago, most people's minds would go to Lance Armstrong, but yeah, on, Lance Armstrong really did dope. It was pretty clear he doped. Maybe the details aren't clear, but now that we know it, is that so much more satisfying? So to me, what did the NFL know about head trauma? I mean, it's pretty clear they knew quite a lot, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's pretty clear that they knew a lot about the, uh, the, the Ray Rice tape uh, more than they said. So it would be, I guess, satisfying on the level of, ha, I knew it, but not necessarily eye-opening on the level of, I never suspected that. Although, we don't know what you get until you get it, right? So this is like comparing the Nixon, Nixon tapes against the, uh, against the Johnson tapes. I think the Johnson tapes taught us a, a lot more about how power works than the Nixon tapes. The Nixon tapes just kept confirming and confirming and reconfirming everything that was pretty clear about Nixon. It's like Nixon used racial slurs. Right. <laughs> like, where, where are my pearls? Um, I, you know, I, you, are you prepared to have folks come up to you for the next uh, several years and give you their own what ifs or what they want to be in the book? Is that part of the fun for you? Or is this something that possibly you're, you're dreading this being a prominent uh, part of your life for the near future? Well- uh, I don't think I'm dreading it. Let's let's say I get inundated with uh, with it. I, I guess that means the uh, book sold well. But the one I have learned since it came out that I have to have good answers to the Len Bias question because sure. that half of the what ifs that people propose to me are, you know, what about Len Bias? And there's a good answer and a bad answer. The good answer, I suppose, is well. Because it was playing, because the stakes were high, and there's a bit of frippery to some of these chapters. You know, I wouldn't. 
I was we, we, we thought of doing a Len Bias chapter, and the answer is clearly the Celtics are really good. Do they win championships? I don't know. There are other good teams in the East at that time. They had just come off a championship. It's plausible to think they win two more championships. And, you know, we so what we've done is we've added – a couple championships to the great greatest franchise ever. I don't know if that changes right. going back to, you know, what my criteria was. I don't know if that changes the time and space continuum for basketball. But I wouldn't want to write a chapter that says he's good, but, you know, he didn't have a good handle or he wasn't really that uh, great from three. I, didn't, I wouldn't want to diminish Len Bias. Mm-hmm. So that's why, given the stakes of the chapter against the stakes of his life, that's why I didn't do it. I don't know if that's satisfying, but that's the honest and, answer. And you're fighting On against... On the other hand, if you... Oh, sorry. Just you're fighting against the irrationality of the Boston sports fan as well. Like they think that somehow magically Bird's back never gives out if Len Bias yeah, plays yeah. and th- things of that nature. The Boston sports fan and that other virulent species, the Maryland Terrapin fan, who, as you know, is no less passionate than any other East Coast fan. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And no doubt about it. So as long as people are inundating you, can I give you my what if? if... Yeah, and then can I ask you about the Muhammad Ali chapter? Oh, of course. Because I want to ask you. Yeah, but you go ahead. Well, my what if, and I don't think this would have made the cut, but that's okay. Like, if I had been asked to contribute to this book, um, this is probably the one that, that I've thought about the most over the years. Because, you know, I did that book. I did a book with John Carlos uh, from the 1968 Olympics, him and Tommy Smith right. raising their fist. Uh, one of the things about that moment is the decision to have Peter Norman, the silver medalist, uh, he believed very strongly in what they were doing, and he chose to stand you know, very erect in solidarity with them, wearing a button that said Olympic Project for Human Rights. And there was a brief discussion about him raising a fist as well. And how would we remember that? What if Peter Norman had raised a fist? What if there had been a white guy raising a fist with these two black guys? How would we remember that moment? How would we remember that image? Would it be as iconic? Would it be as effective? Would it be more effective? Yeah. I think that the uh, the word icon is good. The iconography of it de- sort of depends on Peter Smith being there. And I think that, don't you think in 1968 it would mean something and be taken as what we call now allyship uh and he'd get he'd get plaudits and they'd probably commission a movie on his bravery and their story would be told through him <laughs> but today <laughs> like dances with wolves yeah the, the, yeah, the peter yeah, norman made, story be... of the 68 olympics <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, but i think today uh given the general sensitivities the general uh how much more open uh people's eyes are on issues like that i don't think you could do that you know i hit into it then so yeah. maybe peter norman was as you know he lived he lived a life that showed that it wasn't just a button but he believed yes. in that and so i think there was something about him letting them take their stance uh there was something there was something about him that knew that it was the right thing not to raise his hand no that's, no that's right and and I think there, there would have been the, the questions about allyship versus appropriation, which is one of the things that you'd have to deal with in a what if like that. Like, would it be viewed yeah. as him taking their moment since he you know, wasn't a part of what was a U.S.-based movement, the Olympic Project for Human Rights? Or would it be seen as this supreme act of sacrifice? But one thing I do agree with you about is, you know, there still hasn't been a movie about Tommy Smith and John Carlos and having like this this white guy from Australia also do it. I mean, that, that would have sent Hollywood's tongues a wagon. Yeah. I mean, Mel Gibson would have played that as a young man. <laughs> and then you, Jackson. Oh, I mean, no. it would be one of those roles of like six different... <laughs> oh, 
Um, so, so what do you, so what, so the, if for listeners, the conceit of the Lee Monfield chapter on Ali is what if he had gotten his draft deferment? And as you know, and have reported on, he came close and it was denied for political reasons. We don't know exactly where in the Department of Justice who came down and said that he can't get his deferment. But the twist in this is uh, Montville's argument that that made Ali, that turned him into being able to actually stand by his convictions, uh, turn the public around on him, possibly made him a stronger person. You know, without that, without that rock to press against, he doesn't become the secular saint that he does. Mm -hmm. Uh, What do you think? Is that plausible? Do you buy it? Oh, I absolutely buy it. I th- Lee Montville's been one of my favorite writers for I was thinking about it like maybe thirty years, and I, I from when I was reading Sports Illustrated as a kid, and I, I I thought it was a terrific chapter and very well done. The one thing about it that is a big what if for Ali and would be a different chapter altogether is all right, if Ali never gets his title strip, does he do what he said he was going to do at age 21, which is retire at age 30, rich, pretty, the best of all time, which then raises the issue about Parkinson's and brain damage and what kind of figure he would have been in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s with with functioning motor skills and the ability to speak. Yeah, but I also think, I mean, and this is harsh to say, but the fact that he had to change styles and become uh, yeah, exactly. you know, a guy who oh, no, could that's... take the punishment also mm-hmm. made him the Ali he is. Exactly. And, and, and almost, uh, pardon my blasphemy, but the, the, the almost Christ-like figure who has to take all of this abuse, which was never the kind of fighter he was um, before uh, he had his title stripped away and he had to spend three years Away from, from, from the ring. I think there are three, at least three aspects to Ali. There's the, you can not know a thing about our society and just be a boxing aficionado and marvel at how slippery he was as a youth and how stout he was uh, in his mm-hmm. adulthood. I mean, he was, if you took his two different styles and ranked them, he'd be, you know, both would be in the top 10 of greatest mm-hmm. fighters of all time, which I don't know if anyone else can say that. So he was just this great fighter. And then his personality divorced from his, the political content, just being mm-hmm. the funniest, most charismatic guy. And then the third thing is the political content. And the fact that I think either one of those two things or definitely two of them still make him the greatest sports figure of American history. And I was uh, this idea that I had was proven out. I was on Brian Kilmeade's radio show and he was very kind to me. This is the guy from Fox and Friends. Yeah. And he told me Muhammad Ali was his favorite athlete. And I was kind of surprised given that he probably has zero things in common politically with Muhammad Ali. And I asked him about that, and he said he just t- talked about the fighting style and the charisma and how he seemed so rebellious and how, you know, Kilmi was saying his dad was stodgy and he didn't like Ali, but as a younger person, he glommed on to Ali. So that's the kind of guy, that's what Ali did. He could make one of the hosts of Fox, turn one of the hosts of Fox and Friends into, uh, you know, a gigantic fan. Yeah, well, well, I think this is a quote about Malcolm X, but I think it applies to Ali very well. It says that he he could beat you into submission with his attractiveness. Oh, that's awesome. I think that's everything. Like inter- that's charisma. That's you know. So, so it's like the idea of glomming onto him. And I certainly met so many people in Louisville like that who just adored him, who were you know somewhat to the right of Fox and Friends, but who still <laughs> w- would not stand for an ill word about Muhammad Ali. 
So it's an amazing why thing. Is, why doesn't that exist today? Because we're so inundated and, uh, you know, you just wrote, co-wrote a book with one of the most charismatic football players, but I don't think, yeah. I don't think any, I don't think he's won, maybe in personal interactions, Bennett would have won people over, but I don't know. It doesn't seem like that's possible today. Maybe there's too much information. I think that's right. I think Michael Bennett is absolutely somebody who can beat you in the submission with his attractiveness. I mean, I've seen it. Like, I've seen him, there, like, people protesting the Seattle team, and he pulls over his car and gets out and just talks to the people um, who are there basically protesting him. Yeah. And by the time he's done talking to them, everybody's hugging. And <laughs> it's just, it, but it's like in our society where so much is constructed by social media and everybody's hermetically sealed chambers. Um, of information that is much more difficult to break through like Ali could go on David Suskind's show or William F. Buckley or Cosell and by the time you're done watching it you're to use Brian Kilmeade's words you're glomming on yeah to Ali yeah yeah it's about I mean I agree it's about the gatekeepers we think that this openness makes things open but you know there's a virtue to having a few people who can say who are tastemakers and you know those people are respected and I don't know Ali every everything he earned he earned himself but then a Robert Lipsight type there is no equivalent figure today who could say that Michael Bennett is someone maybe who we've gotten wrong if you think he's just the woman the guy who abuses a woman in a wheelchair at the Super Bowl. Yeah, which I, I am saying right now we're going to find was completely uh, trumped up BS charges. And, but then I think it'll be like when that happens, I had this idea in my head that every single person who trolled me on the internet when those charges came forward, like when they get dismissed, and I do believe they'll get dismissed, I was going to send each of them a note, like one by one, and say, can we now revisit this? But yeah. you know, he'll always be that to people, which is yeah. a tragedy. Well, well, one project you could do in the meantime is everyone who trolled you on the internet who said that, go and see if they uh, endorsed Corey Lewandowski and minimized uh, grabbing yeah. a reporter, because I'm sure most of them did. I'm sure, I'm, sure, I'm sure most of them would be devastated at the thought of their own hypocrisy. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> I, but Mike, thanks so much for the time. I love, love, loved the book. I had so much fun reading it. Um, and uh, the, once again, for everybody listening, the book is called Upon Further Review, The Greatest What-Ifs in Sports History. And before you go, I want to ask you something we ask all of our guests, uh, uh-huh. because we use this for your intro and outro, is what kind of music you're listening to these days? What do you listen to when you exercise, when you write? Uh, what keeps you going? Uh, when I exercise, I have uh, I listen to Pandora and I switch between four different stations of four totally different genres. So one is a self-programmed station called um, Pogues slash Bruce slash Hold Steady, if that gives you an idea. Yes. And then I, li- I then I listen to an EDM station, and then I listen to a, uh, a '70s rock station, and then I've been getting into uh, Run the Jewels a lot. Oh my god. <laughs> Jules. Love Run the Jewels. Shout out to Killer Mike. But no, no, they're, they're, I'm not sure there's better exercise music than Run the Jewels. Although the Pogues could come close. Yeah. It is, it is fascinating talking to you, Mike. Like from Run the Jewels to the Pogues to the Mets to the Jets to Bernard King's injury, I feel like we, we shared a brain for a good portion of. Uh, our respective lives. So that's kind of cool. 
I remember, I remember when I first met you and you were one of these people who I had this immediate, oh, this is a guy I know type yeah. bonds with. <laughs> I'm with you a yeah. thousand percent. Um, I, I look forward to talking to you in person about that Bernard King injury and where you were and how you felt, because I remember <laughs> it like it was yesterday, including as you wrote Butch Beard's reaction that it probably wasn't that big a deal. And I remember <laughs> hearing that, watching him like hit the, hit the stanchion with his hand in frustration, like as a kid being like, Butch Beard is very wrong right now. <laughs> but you know what? Let's let him run the nets in a few years. How about that? <laughs> yeah, let's do that. That that was a big win. Succeeding Chuck Daly, I believe. Is that right? Was he the person who came in for I, Chuck? I, I, I have to look bit. up if there was an in, uh, interregnum. <laughs> yes. Well, when, hey, when was when was Calipari? No, he was he was later, right? Oh, that was later. That that yeah. was that was painful. Um, but hey, Mike, thanks so much for the time. I really do appreciate it. Okay, thank you. Take care. You acted like a safe and a revolution's been the flyers on the roof. If we listen to you, we're all the takers of the truth. Never singing a tune in. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation Magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now, it's time for some choice words. Okay, look. There has been a great deal of reaction following the NFL owner's asinine decision to fine teams who then would be expected to fine individual players if they do not stand during the national anthem before games. Players are allowed to stay in the locker room and protest where no one can see them, but anyone who takes a knee or raises a fist or stays seated or even links arms during the anthem will get a taste of boss's justice. Yet there is one response worth highlighting for a multitude of reasons. It's important because it's not from someone whose voice we have heard from before, and it's not from someone who's been identified as a leader in the players' movement to raise awareness around police violence. It's someone who only just finished his rookie year in the league, and it's from someone only hardcore NFL fans would even be able to identify as a player. His name is Dwayne DJ Smoot, a defensive lineman for the Jacksonville Jaguars. Playing in one of the more conservative markets in the NFL did not stop Smoot from having the following response to the rule change. Here's what he posted on social media. Freedom of speech does not exist for NFL players. Now we get fined for protesting for something we believe in. Fine me. You can't change my opinion and you can't stop my protest. I have a right as an American to protest when I feel there is injustice in this country. The quote holds an unintended echo of the speech by Haymarket martyr and labor leader August Spees, who led the fight for the eight-hour day over 130 years ago and was hung to death on trumped-up charges of masterminding an anarchist bombing. Here's what Spees said. If you think that by hanging us you can stamp out the labor movement, the movement from which the downtrodden millions, the millions who toil and live in want and misery, the wage slaves expect salvation, if this is your opinion, then hang us. 
Here you will tread upon a spark, but here and there and behind you and in front of you and everywhere, flames will blaze up. It is a subterranean fire. You cannot put it out. The echo is there not merely because Smoot is thundering, fine us, the same way that Spee's said, hang us. It's the shared understanding that this is a labor issue first and foremost. It's both people attempting to answer the question of who is going to have the power in the workplace. Are workers just cogs of machinery? Are football players mere extensions of the equipment on the field? These are the questions beyond the eight-hour day or police violence that both struggles were and are attempting to answer. Or in the words of NFLPA Executive Director Demora Smith on the Anthem Rule, quote, It smacks as more of a desire to exert control rather than a desire to stand up and support the rights and freedoms that our country was founded on, end quote. There's another strong similarity. In each case, we are talking about powerful entities attempting to stamp out something that is not going to stop. And they are, in fact, only making the issue more incendiary every time they try to stomp their foot on the flames of anger that exist. The NFL clearly has two goals with its new anthem policy. One was to get Donald Trump to stop using the league as racist red meat for his base, and that obviously failed with his statement that players who stay in the locker room shouldn't be in the country. And the second goal was to stop associating the league with protesting players and get the focus back on football. They could have accomplished this objective by merely reaffirming the old policy and saying that they support the rights of players to express themselves. This would then have been a news story for maybe 24 hours. With more players feeling like they were being heard, fewer would have been protesting at the start of the season. Now, however, players are speaking about protesting during the anthem just to show owners who's really in charge. Now the number one narrative at the start of the season will be how many players will stay in the locker room, who is going to defy the ban and get fined, and how many teams will follow the lead of the New York Jets and pay the fines for players. The problem with this cabal of unaccountable right-wing billionaires is that their desire to maintain a slipping grip on their players to control their labor clearly outweighed taking the sensible and smart path. Instead, they went with appeasing Trump and clamping down. Now they will pay the price for it because there are many Dwayne Smoots in the NFL who are ready to keep this subterranean fire lit well into the 2018 season and beyond. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. The Just Stand Up Award this week goes to Ann Kurzinski and Diane Langer. They are two of 38 former students, trainers, grooms, equestrian officials, and members of the Flint Ridge Riding Club who have accused a once legendary equestrian coach named Jimmy Williams of sexual abuse. Jimmy Williams died in 1993, and he's so legendary in the world of equestrian sports that there's an award named after him. And yet now he's been accused of abuse of teenagers and also young women as young as 11 years old. And Ann Krasinski and Diane Langer have been front and center in pushing these accusations forward. The ruling body of U.S. equestrian sports issued a statement on safe sport and reporting abuse, praising Ann Krasinski and Diane Langer. And they said that they, quote, bravely stepped forward to share their stories and further reinforce that abuse of any kind has no place in equestrian sport. Look, 
We've seen the way the Me Too movement has ricocheted into the world of sports. And wherever it does, we're going to cover it here on this podcast. So even though we've never covered equestrian sports before, and who knows if we will do so again, we do know that courage is contagious. So big shout out to Ann Krasinski and Diane Langer, the courage to come forward against a legendary coach in the name of justice so young girls and women in the future don't have to face similar circumstances. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award this week. Sit your ass down. It goes, this is an easy and a short one, to NFL owners who are apparently openly talking about their fear of Donald Trump for the reason why they did not sign Colin Kaepernick and for the reason why they cracked down so hard on players around the issue of the national anthem. Look, if you're a billionaire and you're scared of Donald Trump, all I got to say is sit your ass down. You are useless. Hey, everybody. This is Dave Zirin from the Edge of Sports podcast. We are trying to add all kinds of bells and whistles to this pod. To do that, we need more folks who can sustain its existence. Go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. That is where you'll find us. If you become a patron, you'll see you get all kinds of little treats. But it's so important that people help us sustain and do the work. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. And you can give five bucks a month, ten bucks a month, or if you're feeling mighty generous, a hell of a lot more than that. And all of that helps us do the kind of work that we're trying to do on the regular. Patreon.com slash Edge of Sports Pod. And now, back to the broadcast. And that gets to Kaepernick Watch this week. The issue is collusion. Mark Garagos, Kaepernick's lawyer, he was on another podcast and he said, the only reason and the owners will admit that, that they haven't signed Kaepernick is that they're afraid of Trump and they've colluded because of Trump. And then Garagos took his view even further saying, basically at this point they've made the choice that they're going to opt on the side of the white nationalistic side as opposed to any other demographic. This is true. One of the things you keep hearing about is that NFL fans are somehow polarized around the issue of players protesting during the anthem. It's not NFL fans. It's white NFL fans that are polarized. Black fans, by a huge majority, support the right of players to protest against racial inequity and police violence. What does that tell us? It tells us that when NFL owners and Roger Goodell say they're doing this because it's what the fans want, they really are talking about a section of white fans. So, my goodness, Colin Kaepernick, by the time this collusion case is done, I expect him to own the NFC South. I think that's how well he's going to do with this. They are showing their true colors. It's coming out under oath. Colin Kaepernick, I mean, they have colluded against your ability to make a living, and you deserve whatever and however much you can get from these despicable forces. I hope I'm right about this, and if not, we shall assess on the edge of sports. I'll say that. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening to this week's episode of Edge of Sports. Before we sign off, I want to give a shout-out to some new patrons we have. Deepak Batal, Jonathan Hawk, Deborah Peltz, Jeff Peters, Henry Stilwell, Adrian Afwa Cadet, Jessica Jewell, Scott Neagle, Zach Weiner, Annie Ross, Doug Fairhurst, Ken Schmidt, and Miles Seligman. 
Thank you so much for supporting the show. If you want to support the show, just go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. For everybody out there listening, we got all kinds of bonuses and extras. If you give five bucks a month, you get to see this interview that I just did with Howard Bryant about our respective book, mine on Jim Brown, his book on the heritage, the black athlete, and struggle. Thanks to everybody for listening. Remember, you can go to patreon.com slash edgesportspod to also become a patron of the podcast. If you want to listen to back episodes of the show, you can go to edgesportspodcast.com. Uh, thank you so much to Mike Pesca for coming on, lending us your wisdom. Again, I want to say it. The book is called Upon Further Review, The Greatest What-Ifs in Sports History. I cannot recommend it enough. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.